This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. I've got a beast of a of a guest today. His name is Jeff Hoffman. Uh, he's an award-winning global entrepreneur, proven CEO, worldwide motivational speaker, best-selling author, Hollywood film producer, producer of a Grammy award-winning jazz album, executive producer of an Emmy award-winning television show. He's the executive producer and stars in the groundbreaking new TV series, Going Public, a show where viewers worldwide can invest in the startups that Jeff is mentoring on the air. In his career, he has been the founder of multiple startups, He's been the CEO of public and private companies, and he has served as a senior executive in so many different capacities. It's a way do you hear this guy's story. Uh, Jeff has been a part of a number of well-known successful startups, including maybe you've heard of Priceline.com, Booking.com, Ubid.com, and the list goes on and on. Jeff, man, I, I said before we started recording, I'm giddy and excited and so honored to have you here. So thanks for being here. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I want to start. I was kind of teasing you in the beginning about like, I'm surprised by your beginnings. And you're probably like, what do you mean by that? So you started as a software engineer and why I think, right? And why I'm yep. surprised by that is you you are this, to me, gregarious, outgoing, extroverted, like you, you're speaking out. I mean, you just seem so comfortable out in that space. I just don't associate that with a guy that came from a software engineer beginning. So how did that come to be? Was that, is that truly where you are? Are you more that engineer at heart or what does that look like? No, so there's, that's a great question. And there are two answers to that. Um, <laughs> first of all, I did that for the wrong reasons, which is part of what I uh, talked to like at a big event this week, talking to kids in schools. Um, And I was visiting schools last week. And as part of what I talked to them about, I went down the software engineering paths because society tells you, uh, go get a good job somewhere at a good company and get a good salary. As if that is what creates a good life, right? Because that is the messaging. We focus on get a good job, get a good salary. and everybody, you know, and then you're good. Then you're good. I mean, I had a good job. I had a good salary. That's why I got a software engineering degree because I knew I'd be well employed. What I didn't have was a good life because I actually hated it. And it turns out, well, Jamie, I'll tell you a funny story. My first startup ever, I hired some software engineers. We're building our first product. We're writing code. And all of a sudden, one day, everybody's staring at me and no one's typing. And I sit back and I go, all right, guys, what's up? And they look at the, the senior guy, Robert. And Robert goes, yeah, Jeff, I'm going to have to ask you to back away from the keyboard. <laughs> and I was like, and why is that? And they said, because you suck. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. This is my company. I'm the CEO. And they said, and still, pretty much suck at writing software. And I said, what degree do you guys have? And they're like, the same as you. We're all software engineers, but we're all good. And you're not. So please <laughs> stop writing code. So my software engineering career uh, well, it got me a corporate job with a good salary out of college. I actually didn't like the job and I quit anyway. And it turned out that on that day, I said to my guys, what do you want me to do? And they said, why don't you figure out what marketing is? Because the product's almost done. So it turned out that a technical marketing role is what I am. And my software degree came in handy because I could sit with the tech team and understand them. But I could go out to the customer in the business world 
and bridge the gap. And that was where the gap was. There were a lot of really great technical people in the world with no business sense. And there were business people that really didn't know what the what technology did and how it worked. So I found a home being the bridge between business and technology. And that's pretty much where I spent my whole life. So so for you at this point, is that what you identify as? Is that is that your your thing? Your you know, marketing, uh, getting getting the message out there, all of that. Is that your skill, your superpower, the thing that you're best at? And well, I'll start with that question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, you know, the great fallacy is, and I, I've got to really press this hard with leaders all the time. So you're the CEO, you're the founder, you're doing well, you see yourself on TV or whatever. So you suddenly think you're actually, you think you're way smarter than you actually are. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter if you're the CEO, the founder, or whatever. Each of us as humans is really only good at one thing. I have, Jamie, I've never hired an engineer who wrote code, then did our taxes, then wrote marketing copy. That's just not how the world works. And so why do you think, just because you're the boss, that you can do seven things? When you start your company, you have no choice but to do the seven things because there is nobody else. But the most successful leaders figure out quickly that they're good at one thing and they should find people smarter than them at everything else. So marketing was my thing. And I would attend my own marketing meetings in my company, but I wouldn't run any of the other meetings, right? I let people, I found people smarter than me and let them run their departments and I only, even though I'm the CEO, that means I'm the tiebreaker if there's a, a tough decision. But otherwise, I'm not going to run the finance meeting. I'm not a finance major. My CFO is way smarter than me. He can do that. My head of HR, she's way more talented than me. She'll do that, but I'll be in marketing because branding and messaging turned out to be the things that I was really good at. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, when you look at what you've been able to scale, you've stayed kind of in your lane and what you're great at and where you add the most value. From a, from a purpose standpoint, I wonder this, because I think I, I heard you say somewhere that you had this goal at one point of traveling to like 50 countries and meeting 50 families or something like that. That was like a, a, a an objective or a goal that you yes. had, right? And what's interesting to me is that you ended up monetizing that goal. But I feel like that's the question that stops a lot of people from pursuing what they're, what's most fulfilling or pursuing what's purposeful for them is, okay, that sounds great. That's what I'd love to do, but how do I monetize that? So they stop, they don't move forward. How did you figure out how to monetize that, that goal? Or, or is that not a question you ask yourself up front? Like, I'm just kind of curious where. That's that's exactly the right question to ask Jamie, because what we find is how many, so many people that have accepted. So here, here's the process. I ask people what their passions are what their dreams are. And this is what they say to me. Well, I had big plans, right? I was going to climb Mount Everest or me. I was going to see, I was going to visit 50 countries in my lifetime. And this is what they tell me. But at some point, Jeff, you got to grow up, man. I got a mortgage. I got a family, right? And I got a job. And so what that implies, Jamie, is that you are accepting that your job and your passions are mutually exclusive. The things you want to do are the things you'll do your passions on the weekend, if there's enough time left over and you have any money. Climbing Mount Everest is what you're going to do when you retire, when in fact you're 70 years old and your knees don't work and there's no way you're climbing Mount Everest. So people accept that the job and the dream, the passion are mutually exclusive instead of, this is what I try to tell people, asking this question, is there a way I can make a job out of my passions? So for me, it's all about intent. My Goal in life was to see 50 countries. 
And I had this crazy idea that I was going to break bread with 50 families and 50 countries and 50 cultures just so that I could become a, a, an actually decent human being, right? A well-rounded human being by spending time with people that were not like me and, and, and seeing the world, being in it. But I was broke. Single mom. She was broke. Never going to happen. I got an engineering job. Never left my cubicle. You ain't going to 50 countries. You're just going to your cubicle every day. So when I quit, my intent was, is there a way to combine my passions with a revenue generating job? And so that is why you will see in my career, I did a lot of stuff in the travel industry, created technology for airlines and airports so that literally my job in my first startup was to fly to a different country every week to install our technology. And so I found a way to see the world and get paid while doing it. So please, everybody listening, do not accept that the stuff, the cool stuff you want to do is stuff you'll do after the weekend because you have to have this job. Why don't you make a job out of that? That's the beauty of being an entrepreneur. We design the company we wish we worked for. You think that, I mean, the way I perceive you is just sort of a blue blood entrepreneur, you know, born and ready, like always had that instinct. Do you believe entrepreneurs are born in that respect or are they bred with what you just said? Figuring okay, out what so your passions I, are. Yeah, I, I think it's actually both. Okay. And I'll explain why. Um, the born part, for sure. Um, entrepreneurship's a mindset, not a job, right? It's a skill set, too, but it starts with a mindset. And I think that's DNA. And, and the big part of that where it's really obvious is risk. You know, there's that saying, being an entrepreneur is like jumping off a cliff and trying to build an airplane on the way down. If you are scared to death to jump off a cliff, um, and have no idea what's going to happen, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. If you are thrilled, I spent my life throwing myself off of cliffs and, you know, woo-hooing the whole way down. If that is what thrills you, <clears throat> taking on a challenge and diving into the unknown, um, then you should be an entrepreneur. And I think that's a DNA thing. Some people are just risk-averse. So that's the born part. But there is a made part as well, which is literally why you do a podcast and why I'm on it, Right. Because you can learn so much from those who've gone before you. Um, and, and you learn from your experiences. You learn from mentors. You learn from educational sessions like this and podcasts. I think that, you know, smart entrepreneurs are also made uh, because they're like sponges. They soak in every bit of help that they can get to be better at the skill set of entrepreneurship. You're talking to somebody and you know, my story, I think I shared with you, I was uh, uh, with a company for a long time and I'm a more recent entrepreneur. I, I, uh, I feel like I have some elements of that or, that are born in me, but I just, I squashed it. I had more willpower than you did. I stayed, <laughs> I stayed employed for a lot longer. But if you're talking to somebody like me a year in, two years in, or who's thinking about making the transition, who has that spirit in them, are there two or three pieces of advice given your multiple jumps off of cliffs, building the planes on the way down? Are there two or three like, things that you would say, okay, look, yeah, you're going to have to do that, jump off yes. and figure it out. You're going to have to get comfortable with risk. But are there some, whether it's tactical or mindset things that you would give, I don't know, two, three things to advice to somebody who's about to, or has recently made that leap? Yeah. So the, uh, the first thing is that uh, you can't do this alone. And that's the part that a lot of people, I, I was already referring to that a little bit yeah. earlier because so many, you know, people when they're when they're doing well, um, they start to believe their own hype. I must be good at this. Look at how, look at the company. Look what I'm doing. So scale. You know, I only ever wrote one book. David Finkel and I wrote a book called uh, called Scale. Yeah. <laughs> super super clever title. Um, the uh, uh, 
And the first thing that we say, and what I tell uh, entrepreneurs all the time is, you can't scale until you can get out of your own way. And you can't get out of the way until you can trust and empower other people. And you can't trust and empower people until you surround yourself with people smarter than you. So that is the first piece of advice, is you got to go out and find people smarter than you and build a team around you. That is the key to growth, the scaling. And that is the part that most people don't focus on. They're so, you know what they tell me, Jamie? They say, I work, Jeff, I'm working harder than I ever have and longer hours, and I should be getting farther ahead and I'm not. And the reason why is because you should be spending less of your time running the company and more of your time out searching for people smarter than you and then trusting and empowering them. That's the first piece of advice. Um, I would say the second piece of advice, uh, and I say this pretty frequently, is to go win a gold medal at one thing. I see entrepreneurs say like, hey, we're working on these four products. And being a gold medalist at anything is so hard that trying to launch four things or run four little companies at the same time, it's not four times harder, it's four million times harder. Find the thing you know you can crush and be good at and, and stick with that. You know, the example I like to give that people forget is Jeff Bezos only sold books for years. His plan was always for Amazon to be a much bigger marketplace, but not until he won a gold medal in books. And, and you know, uh, Tony Shea, uh, may rest in peace, Tony said to me one day, we're just going to be the best darn shoe seller on the planet. They focused on something they could win a gold medal at before they started growing. So I think that's my other piece of advice. Stop trying to do everything for everyone. Find something you know you can crush. If you think about a company like Priceline, well, now the whole company is called Booking. It does business in 190 countries, and it really only has one product, hotel rooms. It's the gold medal. The gold medal product is really good at hotel rooms all over the world. We're not trying to sell you luggage and travel insurance. So that's my other piece of advice. Win a gold medal at something and stop trying to do everything. That's guy. I need to take that advice for sure. So I appreciate hearing that personally. Um, I'm curious with all that you've done. Like I read this bio, right? You've got you multiple <clears throat> startups, all this stuff. Are these are these one at a time for you? And is it as you know? Are they one at a time for you? Is the core of the question? Because I guess what I'm hearing in the first part of your advice was can't do it alone. So I'm assuming this means that you've learned how to scale per your book quickly using teams so that things are in place and you don't have to spend the time anymore there. It's it, you win the gold medal so you can move on to the next one. Is that how you are able to do so many different things and have so many different successes? Yeah, that is critically important. What you just said, people sometimes say to me, you've done so many things and I have yeah. to correct them and say, but only one at a time. When we were doing travel, if someone had called me and said, Hey man, Jeff, I want to show you an idea. <clears throat> I would have said, if your idea doesn't help get butts in beds in hotel rooms, call me next year. When I was doing music, if you'd called me, I would have said, if you're not calling me to help me sell out Friday night's concert, call me next year. One, I'm not a parallel entrepreneur. I'm a serial entrepreneur. So one thing at a time. Um, that is extremely important. And then you have the option. You can sell the company. You can bring somebody in to run the company. But I am not a proponent of all of trying to run three different things at a time. So yes, you are correct. I did all those things serially, not in parallel. 
I love uh, a, a part of your story around you. Know, I mean, you're a CEO, you're a creator, an entrepreneur, but you're also a CEO. You've been a CEO uh, for multiple companies. So I love that you have that experience. And I've, you know, as I, again, I was researching and listening and learning from you uh, a lot about culture. And it makes me like on the other end of it. So we, we kind of gave advice or you gave advice to people like me starting out. But as people scale a company and build a company, on the other end of that, we're in this sort of great resignation period. So let me start with, what do you see as the reason for this great resignation? You know, what is the core reason? Does it have anything to do with the companies? Is it just, you know, people getting life perspective? Like, what is the reason for that? And then I'll, I'll ask a follow-up question about culture. Yeah, I, I, I think it has to do with this moment in time in the world. Um, we've had a lot more people that suddenly had a lot more time to introspect uh, and, 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 you know, survive with a different set of priorities. So I do think a lot has to do with uh, just the state of the world. And it's not one thing, it's lots of things from the pandemic um, to, you know, uh, an online electronic technology enabled world. I mean, there's so there, there are a lot of reasons, but I really think if the world's just where it is now, it's in a different place. And I think that's impacting a lot of people. What is this, the, like you said, the gig economy, the ability to be yeah. online, like, you know, right now, the, the struggle, I mean, I talked to a lot of friends that I've had uh, that I have in my old, old uh, job, uh, other entrepreneurs, people at large Fortune 500 companies, the biggest thing, yeah. problem they have right now is attracting talent, like all of them. It's not like they're going Absolutely. from here to there. They're just, they can't find talent. So what is this, what is the fix for that? How does, how does a company, I mean, is, it, you know, if you were the CEO of a company right now, what do you see out there that might be, that might be okay, uh, so, in need? So, yeah. So you mentioned one of them already, Jamie, which was gig economy, which was recognizing that today's talent actually does not care what your plan is, right? Because too many, a lot of these companies are hiring and they're trying to get people the old model to commit to be a career employee. I don't want to train you and then you leave in two years. Uh, guess what? That might happen. So <clears throat> instead of saying things like, I want to make sure you're committed before we teach you anything because you might leave, recognize the fact that they in fact might leave in two years and restructure the way you design work so that that's okay. Meaning that as a CEO, instead of career-based hiring, hiring be project-based. So I'll use a dumb example, uh, you know, just to make it simple. Um, I, I'm, I'm Apple, and I'm going to hire you not as a career engineer at Apple, but I'm going to hire you to build the iPhone 14. That is a project. That has a finite lifespan, three years, let's say. So in, in the past, we would say, please join our company as an engineer, and here's the career path. And today's talent is like, I don't know if I want to commit that. Uh, and, and long term, and if you're pressuring me to tell you I'm going to stay long term, I can't make that promise. So instead, if you say, look, just commit to the project. Get the iPhone 14 done. You're on the team. And that'll take two or three years. And then at the end of those two or three years, it's your job, not the employees, to convince them to do stay for the 15, right? And yeah. stay for another project. So redesigning the way you think about work into projects and products will attract people. Second, these uh, today's talent very much cares about these three things. Culture, I'll come back to that. Impact. And experiences. They don't just want to know, like my generation did, what's my title and what's my pay? That was my generation. Today's is, how am I going to grow as an individual? What cool experiences will I have working here? What will my memories be, right? Mm. So they care about the experience. So you need to talk about not just the paycheck and the job description, but what is the experience like? And that is where culture comes in. 
because the culture of the company dictates what kind of experience they have. So you don't lead with resumes and job descriptions anymore. You lead with culture. What's it like to be here, whether you're online or offline? What's it like to be part of our family, our tribe? Um, culture is what those people look for. What do you value? What does your company believe? And by the way, um, <clears throat> my company, um, we do, I, I have a, my youth charity. But even before that, we always took a portion. I, I created this thing called that was, uh, you know, the community committee. And I let my employees every quarter, we would take a percentage of earnings. So the harder they work, the more money there was in. But I didn't make the donation. I gave it to my employees and said, please go help somebody in our community. So later, employees would tell me, I sold a company once, Jamie, that I found out after I sold it, the head of HR called me and said, this is amazing, Jeff. I just verified this. I said, what? She said, from the day you started the company to the day you sold it, nobody that worked for you ever quit. And I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever done. And I have no idea how I did that. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> I started calling people. Like, why don't you guys quit? And they're like, do you want us to quit? And I said, no, I'm just trying to learn something here. And that's what they said. They said, because it's so cool to work for a company that the harder we work, the more people get a place to live in our community, right? We, we once uh, uh, paid for a shelter for abused women. And my employees would go visit it sometimes and help the women there. And they were like, it's such a different experience to work for a company where I know that, that part of my hard work is taking care of those women. That's a cultural thing. Yeah. That's not just the job. That's the culture of your company. We have a culture of giving to our community. So that's it. And then the last piece uh, for CEOs that are hiring is people care about impact today. Are you doing anything, your company doing anything like I just described to, to make the world or the community a better place? Or are you just doing this so you, the CEO, can buy a vacation home in the, in the Bahamas? Because if that's how employees feel, that they're just working to increase shareholder value, not that they don't care about that, but if that's all they see, then guess what's going to happen? They're just not that motivated. That uh, there's there's like three or four questions in there. I want to ask this one. So it's interesting that you said, you know, the the generation yours, mine, that had the idea of, hey, I'm going to work for this company for 30 years, retire, right. and that's what I want to do. Versus the that kind of gig economy, people that don't want to do that. Is it is it like, would the advice be to a recruiter or a CEO setting this tone? Like, hey, if you do have somebody coming in saying, hey, I just need the stability of the next 30 years, is that a tell that that might not be a talent? Meaning that person may not be a talented person you want to hire? Like, should it be the flip? Like the person who comes in and say, hey, I want to be project to project because I know my worth. Is that the person we want to hire? Okay, so the, the answer to the uh, first one that you said is... They may have that 30 year person may have plenty of talent, but what concerns me is that they don't have the passion, right? The motivation, the attitude, the energy. So, yeah, if somebody said that, I'd have a little bit of a red flag because I'd be like, how do you even know that until you've been here a couple of years? Tell a year or two from now, tell me what you think. But if you're saying that now, it makes me feel like you're just looking for a safe cave to hide in. And that's not the kind of people we want. Innovators are risk takers. We want innovators in this company. We want energy. We want a little pushing the limit and taking some risk. So, yeah, I think that's a red flag versus the person that says, I'll kick ass in this product. We'll all do great together, this project, and then we'll see where we are after that. 
I, I definitely like that attitude better. They might say to me, man, I hope that it keeps working and you keep giving me more projects and I will stay longer. Uh, but that should be a question mark. As a look, that you say that casually as a as a long term Fortune 500 guy that moved up pretty pretty high in the company, like that is a radical departure from the mindset of probably most companies today. Maybe they're getting there, I don't know, but that is an incredible <clears throat> insight. I really appreciate you saying that. That just opens my mind up quite a bit. Yeah, um, I think that 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 is a lot to do. When we look back at our companies that were successful and why, it's a hundred percent based on the. The, the quality of people we got. And those were the common, what I'm sharing with you is the common elements about those rock stars that made our companies fly. Give me, give me an idea from your perspective as you scale companies and they get to a certain size. You talk about culture, which I think is, of course, ultimately the important piece here. What's the balance of process and compliance and all of that with culture. And what I mean, the backstory on that for me, like I worked for a company that went from, you know, uh, uh, whatever, under $10 billion in revenue to, you know, 50, 60 billion. And along the way, we became much more defined with processes and scripting and compliance with, and just follow this. And every step was sort of dictated. For me, that was demotivating. Is that necessary though, in order for you to scale? Do you have to get more and more defined processes to scale a company? If somebody's listening, it's not more that has a, $10 million business that wants to go to a billion, do you have to get more and more descriptive and defined in your processes or does that squelch innovation and growth? Okay. So it is, uh, that's a fantastic question. And it is absolutely critical to scale, to develop process, to automate things that should be automated, not done by people, sure. which is a question you don't ask once you ask quarterly. Have we, are, are, you know, time and motion study, are we doing any work that we don't need to be doing? You can automate. Then there's a second part, which is outsourcing things that are not your secret sauce. Are we doing things that we don't really need to do? What's our secret sauce? What are we really good at? Like at Priceline, the company was wrote, we had brilliant algorithm designers. You'll never outsource that because it's an algorithm, an intelligent algorithm that makes the, the buying and selling decisions in the, in the company. So those algorithm developers would not be outsourced, but other functions could be. And then last, in order to bring on more people and grow, you've got to document procedures as well. So yes, uh, the, the not fun, the boring blocking and tackling of business systems and processes is critical to scale. And, and you know, smart the, the smart ones know that, right? They develop the process once and up and running. They say, you know what? Let's document this. We'll make training videos. We can bring in lower level people to do it now and I'll go build something else. That's the kind of people you want. But they need to understand that their job is to replace themselves with process and systems and elevate themselves to the next level. Makes sense. Critical to scale. You, uh, I heard you talk about, um, about excellence at, at some point. I think you said chase excellence, not money. I forget where I saw yes. that. But this might be an elementary question or basic question. You may have touched on pieces of this, but what is your definition? As, as a silly, silly question. What's your definition of excellence? How do you define excellence? What does that mean? Yeah, so it, it is a entirely an external definition. Um, and what I mean by that is it doesn't matter what you think at all. It matters only what your market and your customers think. You need to be delivering and delighting customers who can't wait to pay you and can't wait to pay for more because you are providing something that gives them value 
that's something they need and something they're happy to pay for. So that's our definition of excellence. Um, and the reason I say that is because I just always see all these people, entrepreneurs, right, focusing on, let, let me give you the example, Jamie, the way I usually explain it. Um, you go to these pitches with investors in these startups and the investor says, what's your exit strategy? And I'm like, really, what are you exiting, your PowerPoint? I mean, it's such a stupid question early on. I'm always sitting there thinking, why aren't you focusing on their entrance strategy? Why isn't all the focus on let's build an amazing business? Because there's nothing to exit <clears throat> until and unless you create amazing in the world. You got nothing to exit. So stop talking about exit strategies and stop start talking about entrance strategies. And the only entrance strategy is that you are delivering a product or service to a customer base that freaking loves you and loves paying you, never hesitates. We, it's, it's well worth it. We, we're happy to pay for your product or service because the value is recognizable. So that's my definition of excellence. Go build an amazing product that your customers love. They're happy to pay you and the money shows up. When you do that, that's why I said, don't chase money, chase excellence uh, because uh, money follows excellence, right? My first company, we were heads down focused on building great product and the doorbell rang one day. Right. And I'm like, can I help you? And they're like, yeah, we want to buy your company. And my answer was, well, it's not actually for sale. And they said, well, your products are amazing. We talked to your customers. I didn't have an exit strategy. I had an excellent strategy. And the, the money just kept showing up. When you do that, you'll get paid. But if you don't do that, you're not getting paid anyway. So quit looking at pictures of sports cars online when your company is still a PowerPoint. <laughs> That's what I see a lot of, a lot of people are doing. I like that. That makes a lot of sense. You do hear that often, even, you know, uh, Shark Tank, right? What's the, what's the exit strategy? All that stuff. You yeah. hear that all the time. That's a great perspective. It's just too but, soon. Not, we're not saying it doesn't matter. We're saying it doesn't matter until <laughs> and unless you do something amazing. You, um, you, I, I'm curious about your take on, so for companies that are, you know, entrepreneurs that might be listening to this, that are, that are scaling their business, they're growing, maybe they're at a, a point of being sort of, hey, we're doing really well. We're crushing it. All those terms kind of come up. There's the lessons of the blockbusters, the circuit cities, these companies that were huge and now are no more. What are some of the elements? And maybe they're similar to what you talked about as far as uh, uh, you know building, but what are some of the elements that those companies missed or that companies like that missed that people should be mindful of as they continue to scale and grow to not become extinct one day? Sure. So uh, I actually uh, did a, a TED Talk at the New York Stock Exchange on Wall Street. And That's I opened cool. it by saying, uh, here are the three most dangerous words in business. And those three, I wrote them on the board. And those three words are, we're doing fine. Because that is the first mistake all those companies made. Everything's going great. We're doing fine. So as a result, they took their foot off the pedal and stopped pressing the gas. They stopped innovating because we're the best company out there. We're doing great. Um, it is the, the mistake they made is you should always assume that whatever we're doing now, we could be doing something better tomorrow. What is that better thing? And so somebody is constantly looking at, at what could we do better, not ever sitting back comfortably and saying, we leave the industry, we're doing fine. Uh, so that's the first part. They just got comfortable and they stopped pushing. Um, so we always, my recommendation, and I've recommended this to Fortune 500 companies that I've advised, Jamie, when they brought me in, that we've always assigned somebody, you know, traditionally that person would be called an R&D, right, person. I don't care what you call it or a head of innovation, but we assigned somebody that we said, 
we don't want you to pay any attention to the current operations today. We want you to pay all your attention to the upcoming trends, technology, consumer trends, global trends, whatever, and constantly ask this question, what's about to happen and what could our company, what does our company need to do? How are we going to adapt and morph into the future? This relationship, which is gaining some steam, and then honestly, COVID kind of killed it um, for the time being, but it's the relationship between corporates and startups. Um, there's a lot of small innovators in the community. And these big companies, you know, work entirely within their product development department. And we were able to get some big Fortune 500 companies globally to do challenges to entrepreneurs, some of the ones I work with, to go out in their community and say, we're challenging all the startups around us to propose solutions to this problem that our company is working on. So instead of only your IT department or whatever proposing a solution to management, you got 50 proposed solutions in. And what they do is we, 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 is we tell them to give uh, these innovation challenges to give a cash prize because the size of that cash prize is significant to that startup and way smaller typically than the internal operating cost of that big corporation. So they don't look at startups and entrepreneurs in their community as a resource, but they should. Challenge them. Ask them if they can help you. They may have a product. You may wind up acquiring them when you discover they have a lot of stuff that your fortune, that your big company could use. So I think then, then one last area, I guess, Jamie, which is that they don't make space for employees internally to innovate. You're, you're in a big corporation. Most of your focus is on we got to make our numbers. Your department's got to make its KPIs and milestones. We got to make our numbers. So if you as an employee said, hey, I got this crazy idea, but it might just work and save us millions. I was thinking we could try this thing. Most of the time in a corporate environment, you're going to be told, uh, why don't you just focus on your job? That's not your job. Meanwhile, they just shut down a multi-million dollar idea because it's not your job. There are really good examples of that. If you ever go look at Whirlpool, which do people do not think of like they do Apple and Facebook as an innovator, they're a brilliant company. They have a program where if you have a cool idea, they actually seed ideas. They'll say, Jamie, we're going to give you six weeks. Your, your, your teammates are going to cover for you. You're going to be in the lab for six weeks, not at your job. And here's 10 grand. You got six weeks and 10 grand to do a feasibility study. And if your idea actually makes sense, we'll probably adopt it. So most of the innovations in their industry and, in, in, you know, appliances and small electronics are all coming from one company because they don't discourage crazy ideas from employees. They fund them. And it doesn't cost that much. They give you a short period of time and a small amount of cash to convince them that they should take on the project. It's a super smart way. And most companies are like, Jamie, just stay in your lane, dude. That's not your problem. And, and so they shut down that great idea. The, the most innovative companies don't do that. I know that was a long funny. list, but that was a super good No, question. that was great. There's, there's two things, one comment and then a question on this, just more of a, a quick question. But it, it's funny, when I was asking before about you know, the importance of processes as you scale, 100%, I get that. And that makes sense to me. But part of my, I think about this for me, right? So I was a 40, you know, early, a 40-year-old, uh, you know, a top three, 400 guy in a 50,000-person company with the top line about, about to retire. And I was developed, high-performing, ready to take that leap. And then I was like, I don't want it. I'm out, right? So mm -hmm. part of that was that there was what you just said, essentially, like, no, 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 just follow the process, just follow the process. 
where if I'm an innovator or somebody who enjoys innovation and gets fulfillment from that, there wasn't space for that. So that resonates with me. I, I, you know, I, and I don't even know if it's a, at that size, if it's a company or a departmental or a, you know, a leadership concern, you know, in, in that regard when there's not space for innovation. So that resonates a ton with me. My question for you is, and this is again, real quick. Do companies take your advice on this? Like that R&D person you talked about and like, do you find that companies actually buy into that or is there sort of a stodgy approach to even though they brought you in to consult and you give this advice, do they adopt? Okay, so I'm going to say, I'm going to make up a number. I'll call it 40%. Wow. More than half of them have great intentions. And by the way, this is no different than entrepreneurs. For example, I teach this workshop called Explosive Growth. Yeah. And people come in and spend two days and we walk through everything you need to do to turn your little startup to a big one or your medium one into a giant one. It, it's, it's how to achieve explosive growth. What happens is everybody takes two days worth of notes and they're all fired up. Then they fly home. They get back to their office. They're two days behind. All the noise starts again. They had great intentions and they never do any of the stuff. The same thing happens in big corporations. They, they bring me in. And, and we teach them, you know, an innovation culture and give them actual things to do, not just concept. Um, and uh, probably 60% of them start it and then there's pushback because it's more work, right? For their already busy employees, that's culture again, Jamie. Some of them have a culture where the employees don't really want to work harder. So they're, therefore, they don't really want to win. They don't want to be Whirlpool, the, the, the leader in their category. Uh, they just want to get their paycheck and go home. If that's your culture, then even if management takes my ideas and pushes them down, they don't get implemented. So I would say uh, less than 40% of the time does that happen, but it does happen. I've had some some big companies that have called back and said, we absolutely implemented that and it, it, it completely changed the way we operate. So the ones that have followed through have reported um, you know, significant results, but a lot of them don't. Just being honest. Nope, oh, that's great. On the on the culture side, I, I, this question popped in my head. But is there um, how does performance versus culture play? In other words, if you have a high performer, maybe that doesn't fit with your culture. Is that a, you know? Do you excuse that? Is does performance win out? Does culture win out? Do you have to balance it in some way? You, shape, or form? Uh, again, another great question. Um, and, and again, this is my editorial opinion, but I you know been doing the CEO thing for decades. Yeah, that's what um, I'm curious. The uh, uh, so here's what we have learned the hard way, you know, through a lot of trial and error. Um, people can make mistakes at work. I don't fire people for making mistakes, we're all human, but a violation of our values is instant termination. So, the what I'm answering your question is culture above all else, and I'm going to give you an example. We had a cultural value that this is a real example that said, you will we will treat, this is the way I was raised, and this is what I believe, we will treat all human beings with the same level of dignity and respect. So for example, you know, I might be one day with, uh, uh, well, I was the other day sitting at the end of the bench with the Los Angeles Lakers. I don't treat the Laker players any different than I treat the kids in our orphanage in Uganda, right? So that is a fundamental value of ours. You treat everybody with dignity and respect. You don't rank people uh, and treat them differently because of whatever their status in life. So we have this guy, Paul. Paul is our best salesperson. Paul outsells everybody in sales three to one. So 
everybody, so in a lot of companies would say, then you just sort of have to let it go, right? He's an individual performer, but he's crushing it. So stay out of the way. That is not the choice I made. Paul would say things to, for example, our receptionist. He would say things to her, uh, like he would walk by and say, get me coffee. And I overheard that one day. And she's like, I I'm super busy right now. I'm handling a problem. And what I think she wanted to say was, I actually don't work for you. I work for Jeff and the company and I have my own job and it was not to fetch you coffee. But he would talk to people that way. He was always sweet to me, his boss, but I overheard him a few times. So I called him in and talked to him about it one day and told him it had to change. And he laughed. And said, really, what are you going to do? To, what are you going to do to me? I outsell everybody here three to one. You can't live without me. And so I told me he was on a 30-day probation after he said that. 30 days later, I called him in and said, Friday's your last day. And he laughed. And I said, this isn't a joke. And he said, really, Jeff, I outsell everybody in this company three to one. You're going to fire me? I said, yeah. I said, Paul, it's true that you outsell everybody here three to one, but you out-asshole them 10 to one. I said, so Friday's your last day. And I, like I went to the team and I said, bad news. We might have to cut back on expenses for a while because I just fired Paul. Mm. And I said, We're, it's going to hurt. Uh, I might have to hire two people to replace his sales productivity, but I will not allow you guys to be treated that way. That mm. is not our culture. So culture wins. And here's the proof in the pudding. Before I got around to hiring anybody to replace him, a month or two went by and I looked at the numbers and sales weren't even, they were up. So I called a meeting and I said, how is it Paul's gone and our sales numbers are up? And they said, because a big dark cloud left the office. They said, everybody's energy level went up, which meant productivity went up when you got Paul out of here. We're all performing at a higher level now. So the answer is culture wins. Somebody might be a great talent, a great performer, uh, but if they don't fit your culture, you're going to pay the price for that. A, a lot more, it's more invisible, but you're paying the price for that. I actually got chills on that. That was, was really, a, that was amazing. Thank yeah, you. That was a big lesson for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And again, just these lessons for me is, I mean, I've got a page full of stuff written down. I love not a parallel entrepreneur. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I have to remember that. I have to remember that. <laughs> serial, not parallel. That's amazing. There's so many things here. You're right now, you're coaching, you're speaking, you've got, you mentioned the Explosive Growth Mastermind or course or, you know, all of that. Like, what is, I know you do a ton of philanthropic work as well. You already mentioned the orphanage in Uganda. What is, what's your, what's your, one thing right now? What's like, where are you uh, like solely focused right now as far as your next endeavor or, you know, where your passion lies? Sure. So um, there's a couple of things. Um, uh, three things really that I'm spending a lot of time on. Um, uh, my youth charity is the biggest thing in my life. It's called World Youth Horizons. Yeah. I literally, uh, right before you and I got on, posted something uh, today about that. Um, the, uh, Giving children everywhere in the world, the U.S. included, an actual chance at a better life is kind of a major thing I'm dedicated to. So uh, what we work on is providing children a safe place to live, safe is important, health and medical care, food to eat, and then education. So we're making sure as many children as we can help everywhere that we're getting them, you know, fed, clothed, housed. Uh, uh, taken care of and then getting them all in school because education is their only chance at a better life. So that's the work we do at World Youth Horizons. Um, that's number one for me. 
uh, is, is our youth charity. Um, second on that list is probably, I'm the chairman of the Global Entrepreneurship Network. Um, it's actually the logo behind me there. Uh, uh, we have a very simple mission statement. It's a nonprofit. Um, our mission statement is to help anyone anywhere launch and scale a business venture. And the reason is for people to get a better life, they got to be able to take care of themselves. You know, it's to teach them how to fish thing. So we create ecosystems around entrepreneurs and we're now doing this in 200 countries, Jamie. Um, I'm so proud of the, the global team that we have to teach people how to take care of themselves um, by starting businesses and becoming entrepreneurs. So I spend a lot of time on my global entrepreneurship network role. Uh, so both of those things are charitable. Um, and then we're doing work in television. Um, we, you know, we have our new show going public. Uh, which I'm both an executive producer and I'm on the show. Um, uh, and so we've just uh, released that show. We just released episode three this week. And then I'm also an executive producer of a, another show that we just won a uh, second Emmy for, uh, which is called Success in the City, which is a story, a story. It's a show about redefining success for the next generation. Um, because success today involves all those things you and I talked about already on this broadcast when, when we talked about impact and experience and values, not just title and paycheck. People's goal isn't just to be called a CEO one day and make X figures. Their goal is to have a life that actually has meaning and impact. Um, so we're redefining success. So those are the three things, our TV work, our youth work, and our global entrepreneurship work. Amazing. Where can people see success in the city and going public? Where are those visible? Uh, so going public uh, is is streaming online. Actually, both of them are. Um, Success in your city is streaming on Amazon. Um, and then going public, uh, the best place to find it, well, either goingpublic.com or entrepreneur.com. Uh, we've partnered with Entrepreneur Magazine because that streams online. And our youth charity is uh, worldyouthhorizons.com. And for the heck of it, uh, people want to contact me. Uh, I have my own site, which is jeffhoffman.com. Yeah, it's a great site. There's a lot of great content on there. I learned a ton just by going through some of the videos you post there, some interviews you have there. And, you know, you can go down a major rabbit hole researching Jeff Hoffman. It's funny. <laughs> we we had a uh, we had a speaker at our last event for GoBundance. I know you're familiar with the, the GoBundance yeah, group and Tim and everything. And his name is Mick Ebeling. He runs a, a company called Not Impossible Labs. I mean, incredible work, like 3D printing arms for uh, uh, people in Sudan who were who were bombed by their government, right? Like who lost limbs because of shrapnel and all that stuff. Um, you know, wearables that let uh, deaf people hear music. I mean, just an amazing guy with an amazing company. And I wondered then, and I'm wondering with you as well, like how do more people not know who this guy is? Same with you. I mean, I guess you're just out there doing and doing and doing, but, but man, yeah. the amount of impact that you have is, I mean, as I was, again, I, I knew of you, of course, especially with the GoBundance connection and Tim, but when I really dug deep, it was like, I, that's why I became giddy and nervous to have you on, to be honest with you. Like you're, you're a significant human being. I mean that. And that, that's, I'd, I'd say it off recording. Um, and to see the impact you're making is truly inspiring. And I wanted to honor you with that real quick. Uh, Jamie, thank you very much. That really means a lot to me. And you know, I love the GoBundance community, which is why I've, I've been many times and spoken at events and, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a, a very big believer. I mean, the answer to your question is because it was never about me. And so that was never my goal. Um, I never went to try to build followers, right? I'd, I'd rather spend my time actually doing this stuff. The thing that I posted today, I spent the whole morning coordinating a team in Uganda to build water wells um, uh, because we discovered uh, where these children 
you know, 100 children were drinking out of this stagnant, disgusting water and getting sick from it. So we all have the decision of where to spend our time. My goal was never to spend my time trying to get famous or make sure people knew my name. My goal was trying to spend my time doing the stuff I committed to doing. So I recognize that I have like no significant following on any social media, but I have put a total of zero effort into doing that, to be fair. <laughs> well, either this way, you're not impact. a goal, even though you're... people criticize me for that. Ah. You need to work on your social media following. I, I, I get that that's today's world, but that's actually not my primary focus. I love it. I love it. You're true to who you are. So Amazing. Well, I mean, you've given us a few different sites to go to. Is there anywhere else you want folks to kind of, you, know, you can mention your Instagram handle, whatever, anywhere else you want folks to kind of take a look or just go to the website. What's the best? Uh, yeah, best no, way to... I, I think that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Instagram. My Instagram is actually speaker Jeff Hoffman yeah. um, on Instagram. And, you know, you can look at our global entrepreneurship network. It's a uh, gen um.org. So people can look at that as well. But I, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you, uh, having me today. No, Trish, trust me. The honor is mine. And for those listening, I mean, we have a mix of, uh, we have more than just GoBundance members listening. We've, we've actually built this thing pretty cool. I'm excited about this Tribe of Millionaires podcast, but most either are or identify as or are looking to be entrepreneurs. And, you know, this 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 interview chock full of information, of course, that I'm going to take back and, and and implement. I hope to. I don't want to be that guy that flies back <laughs> from the conference and doesn't implement. Um but on top of that, like I, like I said, I mean, if you just spend some time one afternoon or an hour or two just dive, diving into all that is Jeff Hoffman, there are there are a ton of content bits out there that are just going to they're going to teach you and inform you on how how to operate successfully as a CEO and entrepreneur and everything else. So, Jeff, again, I really appreciate you being here and thanks for your time today. Thank you so much, Jimmy. And uh, please stay in touch. Will do. Well, that's it for this episode, but be sure you subscribe for future episodes. Give us a rating and review as well. It just helps us grow the podcast, grow the reach, and give as much value as we can to you on a week-to-week basis. Be sure to go over and check out GoBundance.com while you're at it. Check out Emerge if you're a future millionaire, our elite division if you're in that $1 to $5 million range, or our champion division at $5 million plus. Or on the women's side, GoBundance Women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women. And if you haven't already, jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast. And you'll learn all about what this whole GoBundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon. 